This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 8th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act was supposed to do what its name implied, but in practice, one of the law's provisions allows the Attorney General to indefinitely extend the confinement of convicts who, by all accounts, have done their time. The Supreme Court hears a challenge to part of that law next week. Ilya Shapiro, editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, comments. A few years ago, Congress passed the Adam Walsh Child Safety and Protection Act. Uh, Noble goal, protecting children. Everybody likes children. The problem is there's just one provision um, that provided for the civil commitment of individuals held in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, so uh, cons who are about to be let out, when the Attorney General uh, certifies that they are, quote, sexually dangerous, then the federal government can hold them indefinitely. Uh, now, the problem with this, there might be several. There might be a criminological problem with this. There might be a due process problem with this. But um, what concerns us, and this is the focus of our amicus brief, is that uh, Congress, uh, the federal government, doesn't have the power to just hold somebody that didn't violate any federal law. Um, they were sentenced, uh, they served their time, and uh, and now they're just being held indefinitely on the say-so of the Attorney General, because they're quote-unquote sexually dangerous, whatever that means. Um, Now, the court below, the Fourth Circuit, this is out of North Carolina, the court below struck down this provision as being, uh, as violating uh, both the Commerce Clause, uh, the Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce, and here there's no interstate commerce, uh, and the Necessary and Proper Clause. That is, Congress has the power the constitutional power to pass legislation that is necessary and proper to enforce uh, one of its uh, enumerated powers. And uh, the court, the Fourth Circuit says, yeah, this is not uh, necessary and proper to anything that, that we can find in the Constitution. What is the government's case here? The government is appealing um, the lower court's decision. It says, well, Congress does have the power to do this. Now, interestingly, they dropped the Commerce Clause argument. Even though this was an important part of the Fourth Circuit's decision, they say, all right, we're no longer claiming that holding somebody in a, in a local prison has some sort of uh, even cumulative effect on interstate commerce. Uh, they're relying purely on the Necessary and Proper Clause. And here you have to, fo- you have to follow this chain. Uh, the government has the power to um, denote various federal crimes um, and, and enact other legislation that, pursuant to their, their lawful, enumerated powers. Uh, if, you, if you violate one of those provisions, you get to go to federal prison. So it can regulate federal prisons. Again, not listed in the Constitution. That's necessary and proper to an enumerated power. Uh, the argument here, the government says, is that civil commitment of these, social, these, these so-called uh, sexually dangerous predators is necessary and proper to the regulation of federal prisons. So we're not talking about setting the pay of wardens or uh, deciding how to segregate secure, by security risk the different prisons or deciding where to build a new prison or anything like that. They're saying that holding somebody who the attorney general designates for a particular reason is part of regulating prisons. And uh, we go through, uh, Randy Barnett, a, a Cato a senior fellows on the brief with us, and we go through methodically uh, through the, the Federalist Papers and, and other original uh, understandings of the Necessary and Proper Clause showing why this is a, uh, a flawed view of the case.
how does this relate to the Commerce Clause as an issue? I know the Commerce Clause is a is a essentially a floodgate that has been opened in terms of allowing all sorts of uh, federal regulation. But what what is the relationship between Gonzalez v. Raich and uh, this case? Right. Until 1995 and 2000, in the cases of Lopez and Morrison, respectively, the court had not struck down on Commerce Clause grounds any act of Congress since before the New Deal. Um, so people thought that that would be a uh, that that was a federalism revolution. It turns out that it was more of a uh, a failed federalism armed insurrection or, or something like that. Um, uh, later, of course, uh, five years ago in the in the Raich versus Gonzalez case, the court decided uh, on a six to three vote. Scalia concurred separately that the um, the DEA had authority to prosecute people who use medicinal marijuana in California, even though that was legal under California state law, because uh, that was incidental to the national scheme of regulation of uh, listed substances, of which marijuana uh, is one. So it's kind of a part of a federal scheme argument, which it pushes the limits further. It's not even just an, an aggregation of individual activity f- forms in uh, interstate commerce. This is just a, a national regulatory scheme. Uh, our brief does go into the the, the Commerce Clause uh, race issue, uh, saying that even if race was correctly decided, because this is not part of a national regulatory scheme, there's not a, a national scheme of sexually dangerous predators, nor could there be uh, uh, lawfully. Um, even if uh, race is good law, and even if the, the Supreme Court uh, doesn't want to overturn it, and we say that they don't have to, we obviously would love for them to do so the Adam Walsh uh, provision fails uh, under the Commerce Clause. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.